Hello and welcome to the RamGad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director Podcast. I am your host, Jason Economu, and I am joined today by Autumn Rayness. Hello, Autumn. Hi, how's it going? I'm good. <laughs> so, Autumn, um, you are a local excuse me, political activist. Yeah, right. That's about right. Um, and uh, how else might our listeners know you or recognize your name from? Um, well, I guess um, very most recently I worked um, with Ellie Cochran when she was a council member. Um, I have worked around the state legislature, lobbying and organizing the community around um, issues related to agriculture and pesticide use. Um, yeah, and I worked really heavy on the GMO moratorium election a few years ago. Yeah. And they might know me from the surf break, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're just, you're, um, we had Dave DeLeon as our, our last uh, interview and mm -hmm. Mike Williams, and I described both of those guys as statesmen. Um, but you're really a stateswoman, right? When, I mean, I guess, I, yeah. I think I, so. <laughs> you've, you've been really um, heavily involved in, in some of the top issues that have been facing Maui County, but really Hawaii in general, right? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned GMOs. Mm -hmm. um, what other big issues are, are you passionate about and have you been involved in? I guess um, the three, I guess if you could separate them into topics, agriculture um, and the way our food is produced and how that, not just the health of the people who eat it, but how that affects the environment around it. Um, housing is a really big deal for me and Hawaiian issues, Native Hawaiian issues. Um, so everything I work on fits under one or more of those umbrellas, you know. Now, I want to... Um, Which also falls into the being, how to be a good human in my, you know, it, this is just the, you know, the things we do to be a member of, of society, you know? So is that the most basic summary of your political philosophy? Pretty much. Just be a good human. <laughs> how to be a good human and make sure what's left for my daughter doesn't totally suck, you know? <laughs> now, I want to, um, I do want to get into those issues deeply. Um, okay. But before then, let's take a big old step back okay. and let's um, tell people who you are. Where are you from? Where do you come from? Um, I grew up in the southwest of the US, California, Arizona. I went to school at ASU. Um, ironically, I was pre-law, political science. I, I, I wanted to be in politics and, and make things better, you know? Why, is and it, why do you say ironically? Because, because when I learned what politics really is, I ran far, far away from it. Um, I started to get actually like really big anxiety. This is when like the Iraq war was starting and you know, I really saw it for what it was, um, that it's not about what's right. Law is not about who's right or wrong. It's about semantics and finding the puka and who has more money to manipulate the system. And I really got disenfranchised with the whole thing and I ran away. And I lived in Japan at the time. Um, where at, when I first moved there, I couldn't read anything. It was a very nice place to just live in a bubble of ignorance, you know? And I started a, um, I went to school for herbal medicine. I had an herbal medicine practice there where I harvested all my own plants and I was a surfer and I was very proud of not being politically active, you know? In fact, some of my really good friends were talking about this nuclear power plant down the road from us called Fukushima Daiichi and that they should top, probably take it offline and they were, they were wearing all the shirts and going to all the rallies and I was like, no, you, you know, I'm just gonna be over here surfing and making plant medicine. And then um, 
we all know what happened there, right? Yeah, that's that's wild that you were, yeah. you were there just right before we lived, Fukushima. No, during. That's why we oh. moved to Maui. We lived in the epicenter of the earthquake. The earthquake, the tsunami, the meltdown. And all of a sudden, life was very different, you know? And um, we all got hit in the face with the fact that, you know, the people who were protesting this power plant were right. What they were saying yeah. was all right, you know? And I saw in the, in the following six months how what I thought was a government that was set up to protect us, that they had emergency response protocols. I thought that they had protocols to protect the public in the event of worst case scenario. None of that existed. And in fact, um, we were largely on our own post-tsunami, post-earthquake, post-meltdown. We were largely on our own as far as data collection, deciding what was okay to eat and not eat. And we really caught the government red-handed in lies, like over and over and over again. I saw this machine, you know, where big corporate influence dictates how your government treats its people, yeah. you know? And then I got pregnant. So because we had to do all of this research ourselves, I knew that um, in utero, in utero that developing fetuses are the most at risk um, yeah. for radiation exposure. So I had to, I had to leave like, like now, you know? So as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I left and we had come to Maui um, a lot before that to surf on these like ever lengthening surf trips, you know, first it was a week, then it was a month and a lot. So some of my friends here said, just come, you know, you and baby come and we'll figure something out. So I did. Um, and then this, this place was really, really good to me and my family. You know, we came here with literally nothing. Yeah. Pregnant with nothing. And who's going to hire for a job a half-pregnant person, you know? Like, I was really at the mercy of this island, and they really took care of me. Um, and then while I'm, you know, I have a baby, and I'm working in a restaurant, and just living normal life, and I saw some some conversations, you know, I was watching the Monsanto conversation develop and I really, because I have this bird's eye view of having seen these things develop in other, I've worked in a lot of countries, um, but most recently Japan, I saw the same patterns emerging, the same kinds of questions that the community was asking about what's going on in their backyard. And it's like industry has this playbook about how they design the flyers to put in the neighborhoods to pe make people look the other way and where to put money in the community to diffuse any potential question askers or how they influence people in government to not make good decisions. It's the same playbook. I saw it happening over and over again. And yeah. I was like, you know what? I realized you can try to not be political. You can try to go surf and put your head in the sand and avoid everything. But literally, especially now, our mere existence is political. Yeah. And we can either pretend it's not and let, you know, huge corporations bully everyone into submission and look where that's gotten us. Or we can stand up and do something about it. And yeah. I had this fresh baby at the time. And I was like, we already had to relocate our entire life, you know, because we already let this happen. I can't I can't do this again. So I feel a really big debt to Maui that they took care of, that this community took care of us. Yeah, um, so I mean, I that, that's to, awesome. I have to, you know, I have to be involved. <laughs>
<laughs> that's i mean i'm still kind of blown away by the fukushima thing that, that yeah. you're so Me close too, and, and so directly impacted yeah. by that global event yeah um let's so you i'm gonna keep on going back yeah. and I'm, I'm totally happy keep on telling okay. stories i love it so this okay, is great, great. <laughs> um but but you were you were pre-law at asu did you finish up at asu i finished at asu i got accepted to law school and then i start my mom said congratulations you're the first person in the family to do all these things what do you you know what do you want for your graduation present and i said i want a round trip ticket to europe okay so, so i landed in london and i had this cockamamie idea that i would spend like three weeks touring around and i was like a patriot too i was like american you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna be a part of the government and save the world you know and i got to europe and i realized very quickly that things are not as they seem when you're looking out at when you're looking at the u.s from the outside Oh, yeah. You know, this is my first real big taste. I'd never left the country before. So, like, what year was this? This was 99. Oh, so this is back when Europe kind of hated us yeah, under Bush. totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, so, yeah, I uh, left, and three weeks later, the day before my plane ticket was supposed to come back to the U.S., and I was supposed to get all settled to start law school, I called home and said, I'm not coming back. And I got an extension on my acceptance for the year thinking I would just have a bit more to see yeah. you know I would just tool around Europe for a bit more I was working odd jobs you know in hostels and bars and stuff and I was really like soaking in this new perspective I had and then two years later I came back <laughs> and realized that for what I needed to do and what I the way I looked at the world law school was not where I belonged so where did, where did you go in Europe Oh, I did the whole I, the whole circuit. I mean, I started in London. I went through, got it so long ago. I went through like Paris. I mean, through France, Spain. I worked in Greece for a little while. I picked grapes on a vineyard in Switzerland with a bunch of um, refugees, Bosnia at the time. You know, like all this stuff. Um, I ended up doing. Um, I worked in London for a long time, um, doing research because I also minored in nonprofit management. In okay. School. So I worked for the. Um, this entity that does public housing in London, doing research on like which borough has what kind of needs in their public housing. So I got this really cool um, look into um, what economically disadvantaged communities in different areas need besides housing. Like you can't mm. just house them and call it a win. They all have something that got them there. So yeah. that was a really cool opportunity. Um, yeah. And what were your, you, you said that you learned a lot about America having an outside view. Mm. Um, what sort of lessons did you learn about America, but also about yourself as an American abroad? Um, what, what sort of things internally changed as well? Um, I mean, I was always, like I said, I was a pre-law poli-sci, like I was a political geek in high school. I took all the AP polit politics classes and, um, you know, I was like, really into constitutional theory and like the, the, you know, the birth of the U.S. and how it was this great new experiment. And then I started realizing that that's not really true. Like I left college tens of thousand dollars in debt. You know, I started school when I was 17. So by the time I was 18, I already owed the government $10,000 mm. before I was even an adult. Yeah. You know, and when I walked into my dorm room, there were pre-approved credit cards sitting on my desk. 
This is before all the credit stuff, right? So yeah. This was a thing. I didn't have to apply for them even. They were ready to go, you know? So I left school in debt, in a lot of debt. And I was rooming with people and working with people, Germans and people, Swiss people at hostels who were really well-educated and didn't owe anybody a penny. Yeah. You know? And, but like, I didn't have insurance, you know? Um, and what I, in high school, a friend of mine broke his arm, and we, had, we went to the hospital with no ID on him and sawed his cast off. He, this is a, co a college student. And we sawed his cast off instead of going back to the hospital with a hacksaw because he didn't have insurance. And I'm sitting here with people who have had major surgery. They're well-educated. They speak three languages, and they don't owe anybody a cent. And they're 19 years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was really, it was really crazy. Um, and I was like, wow, this is, this is not the picture I, I was painted. I, I, I thought that when I went to like Eastern European countries, I would see all this blight. Yeah. And all of these ugly, unhealthy people. And that was not true at all. You know, I saw these really beautiful cultures of people, gorgeous people, you know. Um, yeah, it was really, it was really eye-opening. And I realized that I had grown up with this sense of entitlement because I'm an American and we know better and we have better and we do better. And that's not at all the case. Yeah. It made me realize that there are so, so even now I have this eye that what I'm seeing, I understand that is not everything, you know? What do you, what do you think the, the divide is? Why, why do you think that's attainable in, in certain spots in Europe? And, and why do you think American culture hasn't, hasn't gone in that direction um i mean if uh, you know i'm just kind of coming up with this off the fly oh yeah we're just one is corporate control money yeah corporations control the u.s like i in a way that is very 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 unique you know we all countries have corruption all countries have corporate control and scandal but the the way i see it happening in the states is so unique and mm. so dangerous um and the way that we measure success um, let's talk about my, my, my field of, you know, most expertise right now is pesticide and, and toxics regulations right now. You know, in the U.S., we measure the regulation of toxic chemicals or additives with economics. You mm. know, what is the public health uh, risk versus what is the economic benefit? And that's, that's the weight. Yeah. In, in a lot of countries in Europe, that's not how they measure that. You know, they don't, economics is not equal. So if something brings a large economic benefit, but it's also going to maim a large portion of your population, it's a no, it's a non-starter, mm. you know? Um, so I think those are the two big things and which that one also comes back to money. Yeah. We make a lot of our decisions based on economics and look where it's gotten us, you know? I think, um, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think you're right. I'm not. I'm not even gonna to say, but mm. the, you are right. Mm. Corporate uh, power and, and greed is sort of a big, big aspect of it. Um, I mean, even in your your discussion as far as how we we set environmental policy, that's true. The mm. I think both the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, and and I'm just bringing those two up because they're the ones that I've looked at most right. recently. They both factor in the the economic cost of of uh, remediation of water yeah. sources um, when it comes into to whether they should be implemented or not, yeah. um, and that is kind of a messed up way to look yeah. at it. I I think one of the other issues though is the consolidation of power. 
in oh yeah totally in few people who who tend to end up being influenced by at least wealthy folks mm. um so yeah I, I agree with you i don't know yeah, if that's, there's a that's way to huge. get around that. um it's funny that you bring that up because the opposite of cons consolidation of power if we're talking outside the corporate structure right in yeah. government is home rule and i'm yeah. a huge advocate for home rule like almost everywhere you know in whatever subject matter we're talking about whether it's housing or taxes or agriculture or education i think home rule is like a huge part of the answer because mm. right now let's take hawaii as the, a perfect example a lot of the things that i'm working on funding for housing pesticide and agriculture policy um, education reform are all seated in honolulu yeah you know we the counties and don't have the ability to make big change and you know, we see how that's working out for us. Like, I, we can't get to Oahu. We can't compete with Oahu money right now. Yeah. Um, and people on Oahu have no idea what's going on out here. So that's just a small example. But home rule, I think, is a large giving back states and counties more power to decide what they need Hawaii they allow. Is, Hawaii is a really interesting example, and I, I agree with you, um, I, which is also super interesting because Hawaii is a very blue, very liberal state. Um, as a state, we, we lean heavily left, yet the notion of home rule and, and state rule over itself, state sovereignty, is very much um, considered a, a conservative principle mm. uh, or something that's really attributed to the far right. Mm. Um, you know, so, so Hawaii has a lot in common with the, the far right in that which one specific thing. Which is a testament as to how badly people in Hawaii have been, pardon my, my bluntness, screwed over by the power because that's... Yeah. They, they have been so badly abused by the people in power that they yeah are kind of taking that concept on well know? i was you know i was um i didn't want to get into the injection well stuff and i don't i don't want to spend too much time there mm -hmm. but i was having a conversation with a really nice gentleman named uh i think his name was dale okay and and he was a farmer and, and him and i are we were op opposing each other in opinion mm. um i think the the county shouldn't settle the case purely for the fact that I don't trust the federal government when it comes to, to Hawaii's groundwater. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, the, the way that the case shaked out, it went to federal courts because the plaintiffs sued on a federal law. So it was in federal court, the, the Ninth Circuit, which is a federal court, decided that Hawaii's, um, the Lahaina Injection Well area needs a permit under the Clean Water Act, which means that, that Trump's EPA is, is mm. the ultimate permitting authority. So I'm, I'm opposed to that, but when it comes to you know, that argument of special interest. Mm. Well, you, you had the plaintiffs where they used what I affectionately call the dark arts, which is the, the same strategies that are usually uh, associated with big corporate entities, the, mm. the propaganda with images and wording and, and mm. lumping people into to categories. You know, you're with the polluters or you're, you're with the environmentalists. Um, but when I was talking to this fella, he, he brought up this issue of, you know, well, you know, why, why are you worried the, the Department of Health keeps on saying that they're not going to enforce, the EPA wouldn't enforce against this? And I said, man, if there's one thing history has told us is that the people of Hawaii should not trust the federal government when they say they're not going to screw you people over. Right. You know, it's it's that's the one key factor that the federal government cares less about the people of Hawaii than the people of Hawaii. Right. Um, and and for that alone, I, I think um, the home rule issue is so important to, to everybody. And even even if we disagreed on 
on some of the legal theory and everything else. I think everybody can see that that Hawaii is such a um, a unique state, you know, geographically and even culturally and politically in all these ways. Mm. Um, that that you're absolutely right. The home rule thing, I agree with you. But if we look at Hawaii in a different way, and the reason why I think it's such an interesting example is because you brought up like education. Um, that's an area where where I think economics do need to, to come into account. Um, I think probably the people of Maui would, would do a better job at guiding the education for the children of Maui. But where do you think the economics play in there? Do you think they should be a consideration? Because it, it would cost a lot of money if Maui was suddenly put in charge of all of its schools and all of its charter schools. I don't mean that economics can't be considered. Yeah. I just mean that it can't be given the weight that it's currently given. Mm. You know, like um, if there's a choice between... A and B, and A is the right decision, but it costs more money, and B costs less money, but is an obvious, Worst the decision. wrong decision. <laughs> and also, here's, here's the thing that doesn't really fit in like short conversations or small headlines. I think, I'm a philosopher, so bear with me. I love I it, think, do it. I think that we are repeatedly, the public is being given, we are being manipulated into thinking there's only two choices. Yes. We are con repeatedly given this false dichotomy of the environmentally sound decision that costs a lot and is not viable or the environmentally and socially <laughs> irresponsible decision that costs a lot of money. I mean, that, that is cheaper and that's the only two choices we have. We are yeah. constantly being given those two decisions when it comes to housing when it comes to education, when it comes to agriculture, and we're put there because we are, they're, they're, they are um, manufactured by people in power, yeah. you know? They don't, no, the people in power who are banking on us making the cheaper decision that also makes their government, or their corporation more money, don't want us to know that there's a middle ground, there's a way we can get around a table and hash things out and really understand each other's point of view and find a middle ground, you know? That doesn't fit in the legislature though. It doesn't fit in council chambers. It doesn't fit on the headlines in front of Maui News. You know what I mean? So, mm. so when I say economics um, can't be involved, I don't mean that it, you know, we live in a society where economics is a major thing. Yeah. It just can't be the only reason we make decisions. And in what I've seen, it is. It's, it's weighted so heavily in how we decide things that we really, we're really in a pickle right now, you know? And getting ourselves out of the decisions that we made because of economics are so insanely expensive, mm. but we put ourselves here, you know? So, yeah, we're gonna have to start paying really big bucks to fix things, but that's what you get. You know, you can't live on credit for your whole life and then complain when your credit card bill comes, you know? Yeah. Um, we have to buy our way out of some of this. Including, you know, we don't have to go into injection wells, but including fixing our injection wells. Yeah. Comes with a price tag. And, and you know, to, to touch on that, um, I agree with that, too. You know, like, that, that was the other issue with the injection wells that I think got lost, um, was that a lot of po folks still want the case to go to the Supreme Court, but they also want $20 million invested in the water right. reuse and recycling right. program. They also want the, the quality of the water to, to be better so that there's no question of whether it's mm -hmm. causing the reef to die or right. not. You know, like you can be for both. Um, and, and I think it's, it's really 
I, I love that you're pointing out that just because something doesn't fit in a headline doesn't mean it's not true. You know, there is that false dichotomy. Mm. Um, it's like when, when a mom tells a toddler, do you want to wear the blue shirt today or the yellow yeah. shirt? You're getting a choice, but you're wearing a shirt. Yeah. That's, you know, not wearing a shirt's not We're one of the choices. We're all smart enough to know that there are other colors of yeah. shirt right now. <laughs> but these are your choices. Yeah. Um, when you say people in power, though, um, what, who are those people? Are they the elected officials? Are they the just people with influence? Is it, is it people with money? What, what is your view on that? Um, that's a really good question because you have the people that are holding office right now. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go back. You have people that were holding office a couple of years ago before this last election. Yeah. Right. Um, I geek out a a small team of us geek out on campaign spending reports every election cycle. So you see that the people in power are also paid for the people who hold office are also paid for by big money. And I've almost stopped listening to debates. I don't watch presidential debates. I barely even watch county level debates anymore. All I do is go and look at money because I'm smart enough to know that you can say whatever you want to say on a stage. But if certain parts of um, the economy are funding and not only funding, they're going all in on your election, Mm. they know something. We're not stupid. People don't put millions or, you know, or tens of thousands of dollars into somebody's campaign account unless yeah. they know something, you know? And I'm not saying it's as easy as buying a vote. It's very, it's a lot more nuanced than that. If a corporation or some part of the section of the economy knows that can, candidate A is friendly to A, B, and C issues and they start funding this and that candidate wants to get up on stage and say the opposite, I tend to believe the money. Hmm. And not because it's as easy as buying a vote. You yeah. know, there are patterns in human behavior. There's a pattern, you know. So um, when I say people in power, I mean people who hold office and I mean the people funding their elections. Um, because once you get into office, no matter what your intentions are, you know that you can't hold that office without money. And you know that if you piss off your donors big enough, they're not going to fund your reelection. I've seen with my own eyes, I won't mention names right now, I've seen people at the state who were very unwilling to listen to concerns about pesticide exposure, the chemical companies and, and their practices in this state, and how we need to change how we grow our food. People that were very against what I was saying, they started to be more friendly to what to our cause over the years because they started to realize that we're making a bit of sense. Yeah. Even if you don't agree with us completely, there are questions that need to be answered. And I've seen the industry go from supporting them to attacking them in one election cycle because they softened their opinion. Not even because they switched sides. They yeah. put up people to run against them and take them out merely because they softened their opinion. So people in power, there's two answers. There's people who hold the office and there's people who keep them there. Mm. And that's unions, that's corporations, that's the big five, you know, old plantation money. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, I mean, this this is a, this is a good conversation because we can go into like some some somewhat real world scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you see that Ram gave money to to an elected official for county council, yeah. let's say. What are, what are your impressions, if, if you see that? Again, patterns. 
a lot of really smart entities will give money to every candidate. Yeah. I get that. I'm not going to come out publicly bashing somebody because they took a $200 check from A and B. But I will say that I worked for the one elected county official that I know of. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I did the research. Ellie Cochran was the one elected official that refused. She actually sent their money back. And then they stopped bothering to even send her money. Mm. So that speaks volumes about why I love her. Anyway, <laughs> um, most entities will give money to everybody, right? I don't, I don't hold that against anybody. But yeah. if you see over the years that a certain segment of the, let's use the chemical companies, because, again, that's my forte right now. They really repeatedly and increasingly support a certain group of candidates. That tells a story. It's pattern, right? If... Ram gives money to one candidate one year and they win. And this candidate guts all the things that Ram um, believes in. They're obviously not going to keep funding this candidate, right? Mm. So I can tell right now, even without knowing the you know, intricacies of every single vote or piece of legislation that went through, something happened somewhere that made Ram not support this candidate anymore. Yeah. Right? So it's all patterns. I'm never going to... And and if you look back at the pieces we've put out about campaign funding, I actually really discourage people from painting this black and white picture that one entity can buy a vote from a candidate for a certain amount of money. It's mm. not that easy. It's, it's way more nuanced than that. And it's money is relationship. It develops over time, you know? Um, so... That's, that's how I look at it, you know? I'm never going to bash someone for taking one check from one entity one time. Yeah. You know? Do you think that there's a way to, to get that money and that influence out of politics? Yeah, and I think we really, that really has to be a focus. And um, do, you, do you have any ideas? Do you think it could start at a county level, or do you think that it, it would have to, to be a major federal reform? That's a great question. Um... I don't like to talk about things I don't know about that much, and yeah. I haven't really, you know, like looked into campaign. Campaign finance, finance is a tricky one. <laughs> I am a, I am a, I know a lot about its results, about the problems, how to fix it. I'm not sure, um, but it really needs to be looked mm. at, you know. See, like my my wife and I, we talk about this stuff quite a bit, actually, um, which is, I don't know if there's really a way. Um, because what I think a large part of it comes to is the role of money and influence in our life, in our world. Um, so I, I look at uh, somebody like Boris Johnson in, in Britain and him being this populist candidate. Meanwhile, he went to, what was it, Eton, which is the, the private school that pretty much every prime minister has gone to in high school. You know, and, and what you see is even with these populist candidates like Trump claims to be, um, they're really just rich jerks a lot of times that all know each other because they, their parents grew up together and their grandparents grew up together and they're all old money. And I just don't know um, how to get that type of influence out of things. Um, so that's why I, I wonder if it would ever even be really possible to get it out of politics because the, the folks who are in the positions of prominence where they can actually... Um, they don't have the, the $200,000 in student loan debt, and they have the right connections, um, and they know the right people to put them on the path of what to study and, and who to meet and what events to go to. Those are the folks who are going to get into office. And more often than not, in, in 
I would say most jurisdictions, um, it, it tends to be people who, who their parents bought influence. So let's look at what you just said. So I agree that yeah. it's not going to happen under this current system and under this current power structure. There's this saying, what is it? The tool, the master is never going to give you the tools to dismantle his own house. The people in power are never going to vote right now for election, for campaign finance reform, because that's what's keeping our current system of corporate control is what's keeping these people who nobody really likes in office. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it baffles me every time that we elected Bush again. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, so yeah, we have to do it from the bottom. The federal government is never going to vote next year to reform campaign finance law. Yeah. Right? That's their safety net currently. But that's why I worked so hard with a lot of other people on this Hooli system from the bottom up. The only way we're able to change any of this, including campaign finance, including environmental protection, including fair housing, is by a full system Hooli. And that only starts without money. Like we... And I can say this with gusto because we beat $8 billion plus of Monsanto money with two pennies to rub together. And we did it because we had people on the ground sweating every day, knocking on doors, having real conversations with people. You know, yeah. look at Bernie. Like, okay, long the, the, what happened to him in the, in the end is not okay. But we have this guy with these radical ideas, people who have, I don't have any money to be giving to a presidential campaign I donated so much money to him I did too because <laughs> that's literally all I have but that's how we're gonna do it yeah and it has to be everybody it has to be everybody showing up and if that like this last election I concentrated on Maui County because that's really all I have right now you know if we can flip Maui let's go to the state you know if we can get some of these people that we just got elected into Maui County Council to go up to the state and take the seat of some of these guys that have been in there for 40 years and are all their campaign finance comes from a and b and um what's the cigarette company oh like philip morris philip morris <laughs> yeah that's who's funding our state legislature right wait now. really it's crazy it's crazy when you go look at who funds campaigns yeah anyway so if we can start you know feeding the pipeline up Maybe we have a chance. And that's got to happen really fast because yeah. we're on a, our clock is ticking right now. And honestly, as, as a progressive who works in, in this world of political advocacy, I would like if money was taken out of politics. Like, I, I would like if that wasn't an aspect of my job, having mm. to consider um, who to give campaign contributions mm. to. Um, because that would, that would make it more pure in, yeah. in a sense. Like, like I wouldn't be worried about people accusing me of any ethical impropriety just because I, I gave money to a candidate I believe in. And when I go up and say something, I don't want people to think, oh, is it because he's going to yeah. support them in the next election? Right. I mean, you know, I, I think that um, I think that lobbyists play a role in, in our oh, totally. in our politics. I think they always have. I'm a lobbyist. I'm a registered lobbyist. Yeah. At the state, uh, not it, for the county, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's oftentimes a, a pretty maligned word and profession, but what people don't understand is that, you know, there's, there's environmental lobbyists, there's, mm -hmm. there's health lobbyists, all that other stuff. Um, but, yeah, it, I, I think you're, just, you're spot on. Get money out of politics. Philip Morris. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's really crazy. Anyway, um, I think the gist of the whole thing is... Um, I, I can hear or imagine realtors 
listening to this and hearing my ideas and you know I, I, I speak pretty bluntly um, I don't mince my words a lot of my ideas are what you might call um, idealistic or radical or you know call me a socialist or whatever but um, yeah they are you know would I, you call yourself a socialist I mean I'm leaning that way yeah. I don't I don't really want to put myself in a box. In a box, yeah. <laughs> but this whole like this whole system of corporate control of politics and like I said, um, economics being the sole mm. decision maker is not getting us anywhere. I don't really understand. I don't think people over 40 or maybe over 50 understand how screwed we are mm. right now. If we don't when people say, oh, I don't think it's possible to fix that, that's not an answer that's acceptable anymore. I don't think it's possible to fix money in politics. No, we have to fix it. So if by fixing it, it means we have to burn down the current house to build a new one, then let's do that. You know, we, we can't do that fast enough or we don't have the, the, corp, the you know, political will to insert whatever problem we have to solve here is not an acceptable answer anymore. Mm. Tell that to my seven-year-old. You know, the injection well thing, this is really um, a big thing to me. My daughter and I spend a lot of time in the water since she was like two or three. I take her snorkeling. She's known how to use a snorkel since she was three years old. Yeah. You know, and the places, and she's only seven. That's only four years. In the span of four years, the places that I take her that have to be near shore because she was only three, yeah. You know, we can't go swimming way far out in the deep are completely different. And sometimes like I get really choked up in the water, like I'll tap her and I'll pull her up. And I'm like, look, babe, this is what dead coral looks like. Yeah. You know, and take a really good look at this kind of fish because I don't know if it's going to be around much longer. And it bums her out. She's seven. Yeah. So if someone wants to talk to me about how much it's going to cost to fix A, B and C injection wells, I don't actually want to hear it. Hmm. Great, that's the price tag. Let's figure out how to raise the money. Let's start taxing some of the hotels. Let's do, you know, call me a radical. Yeah. But what's more radical? That or telling my seven-year-old to take photos of fish because she's not going to see them anymore when she's 15. You know? I think that's way more radical. Yeah. Like, we have to figure something out. No, I, I agree know? with you. I, I think the, the economic argument is is not, not all that compelling. Um, you know, everything's going to cost money. Uh, and, and like the, even the, the fact that it's the sewer rates, you know, just saying, well, your sewer rates are going to go up. The sewer Great. rates are going to go up. Great. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> just how it, it functions. As we have an increase of people, the sewer rates go up because yeah. there's more of a demand on the system. So let's fix things yeah. that are costing too much to our residents and bring that cost down to even it out. Yeah. You know, let's, anyway. And well, I mean, and as I, I said, I'm I'm on I'm in complete agreement with you. It's it's just I, I look at the um, the interplay of federal law and state law, mm -hmm. and I think the big miscalculation was that um, they should have they should have focused their lobbying efforts to begin with at the state ledge, mm -hmm. because under the Safe Drinking Water Act, it's it's the state that could have set sh more stringent regulations. I mean, that sounds good, but have you ever? lobbied any for anything at the state level but the thing it's is like talking to a brick wall but now <laughs> now it's a matter of lobbying at the federal level right because because you have to rely on on the clean water act and and the federal epa 
Yeah. So, so we lost the ability to try and influence policy at home um, because of that, that Ninth Circuit Court's decision said, no, 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 policy is now dictated yeah. by, by Washington. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm pissed off for the same reasons that everybody else is pissed off about, but they don't realize they should have been pissed off months ago. Well, yeah, and we can agree to disagree about the process, but I also yeah. know I've, I've, I'm privy to a lot of situations where I would like the government, I would like to lobby for reform, and the government responds, and then the system works. And a couple of times, even working for a legislator, I've had to tell a constituent, it's faster for you to just sue. Yeah. Because good luck trying to get this body to listen to you yeah. and change something in any meaningful amount of time. And it is faster to sue sometimes. You it, know, and it is. if we're being real, if our administration could have just whether they can argue that they're technically allowed to be doing this or not, if we just all would have said, hey, what we're doing, whether legal or not, is killing our reefs, let's fix it. We could we wouldn't have to be here anymore. Yeah. You know, instead of arguing about the semantics and the legal loopholes. we could have just. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to when when things when that ball starts rolling in the legal system mm -hmm. um, it's hard not to look at, at the yeah. semantics. And, it, and it's easy, like, it's easy to criticize lawyers for looking well, at... Well, I'm talking about at, before it even got to court. Yeah, okay. When we first realized that what we're doing is not okay. Yes. You know, when they first started injecting the dyes and all that, when the science was clear, a proactive yeah, figure out a better would way. have said, whether what we're doing is legal or not, it's not okay. Yeah. And we need to fix it. Yeah, and, and you know, I think... Um, I hate the argument that... Which is why I dropped out of going to law school. Because that's the entire system. We're not talking about whether it's right or not. We're talking about how to get away with it. And that's the problem. You know? Kind of. I mean, you know, it's, it's difficult to say that we're not talking about whether it's right or not. And you can't really say we're just trying to get away with things. <laughs> because there, there has been a significant commitment to expanding the water reuse program. Yeah, you're right. There's, there's a good well, amount. Well, now, yeah, there has been lately. Yeah, lately. I mean, over the last few years, though. Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, since, since the whole lawsuit thing began, exactly. there, there has been, been proactive yeah. movement. So, so you got to give some credit where, yeah, where credit's totally, due. Totally. Um, yeah. Man, we, we just went off on a, on a yeah. Sorry, I do that. There. It's okay. <laughs> um, so so you went to. <laughs> I love reel it this. Back in, reel it back yeah, in. I'm gonna reel it back <laughs> in. Um, you went to to ASU. You went to Europe. Um, you you got these big takeaways. You you learned that America is is deeply flawed yeah. in many ways. As is, you know. Yeah. Every other place. And then did you did you go back to, to the SoCal area after that? Where, uh, yeah, where did I life went, take you next? I went uh, after Europe. Um, I thought, okay, now I'll go back to the U.S. and, like, be an adult, a grown-up with a 9 to 5, you know? And I started working for the American Cancer Society because I had a nonprofit minor. I was really into maybe nonprofits are the way to go, you know? Yeah. And um, that was really uh, disheartening because – and not that, you know – Big nonprofits start out great. And then I saw that system that I was basically raising money, enough money to pay for myself in the office I was working in. And I was like, where does... <laughs> and yeah, I, I don't really see that I'm doing anybody any good right now. You know, I'm on this, this hamster wheel of helping this big organization raise money to pay for itself. Yeah. And the individuals that are actually suffering from cancer what exactly are they getting? You know? Yeah. And I saw the corporate control there too. You're seeing a pattern here, right? 
and um, disenchantment. That, disenchantment. Yeah. yeah, I was a real. I, I'm an idealist, and when things don't live up to what my ideal expectations are, I get really disappointed. <laughs> so um, then I, um, on a whim, a friend of mine was teaching English in Japan. So that's what got you to Japan. And the yen was really strong at the time. And I thought, oh, great, I'll go to, and they were paying for your plane ticket over because they needed teachers so bad. So uh, I went over and did that. And um, yeah, I meant to save a bunch of yen for a year or two and then just go burn around Asia. And the town in Japan that I was in, which was Sendai, which happened to be the 10 years later, the epicenter of the earthquake, yeah. was so beautiful that I just like got stuck there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I met this really amazing, crazy mix. It's this really crazy big city, a couple million people, 30-something story skyscrapers. Oh, wow. But you can, within a 10-minute bike ride of city center, you can be riding through rice fields and country, old-school Japan, Japanese houses with wood-burning stoves. And then right on the other side of that is the ocean. So you can, like, have your city life, and you can surf, and you can plant rice with the farmers and it's it was just everything you know did you learn J japanese while yeah, you were there i became really i became fluent i went i went to school and i took like the japanese proficiency tests and i can not quite read a newspaper but i can yeah i can read and write i started my own business which was the the herbal medicine yeah um how long did you go to school for herbal medicine <laughs> plant well, <laughs> medicine <laughs> i studied there for a little while um and i went back to the u.s to California for about a year to finish my um, the parts of my courses that need to be done in person. Um, and then I studied in Japan while all this was going on with um, Japanese plant medicine is macrobiotics, basically. That's what the macrobiotic okay. diet system came from. And they have a really big um, Chinese medicine influence over there. They have a lot of um, kampoyaku Chinese medicine mm. um, practice over there. So I got this like intersect of like Southwest Native American medicine with a European background and Chinese and Japanese medicine. So I had this really weird niche in the market. <laughs> um, and I would take people up into the mountains and teach them how to make their own That's awesome. Medicine. It was really, really beautiful. Have you ever, um, this is going to sound like a weird question, have you ever seen Outlander or, no. or read the books? No. OMG. Okay. Um, this, <laughs> so Outlander is the story about this, this nurse who falls through some standing stones in, in like northern England okay. and ends up getting transported like 200 years back in time to, to um, Scotland. Okay. Um, but she knows plant medicine. Right. Her, her dad or something was a botanist, so he taught her all this stuff. So she's like a medicine person. Crazy. And she, so if you ever fall back in time, okay. um, you're set. Yeah. You're, you, you have you know, I, feel, I feel like I did. I feel like this was this, it was this weird like other life that I was living because... Um, you know, I went there to teach English, which is, you know, a lot of people do that job and it's very basic, but um, my weird political philosophical brain ended up taking me. I was teaching at a university. I was teaching social issues. Oh, wow. And international communication um, to college students while I was saving money to refurbish this old Japanese house that it was so old that nobody wanted to live in it anymore. Like people <laughs> want modern things now. So um, my landlord was like, if you want to rent that thing out, she was going to tear it down. And she was like, if you want to refurbish and rent that thing out, more power to you. And I turned it into this little nook of, um, it was really like going back in time. You know, we, we polished all the wood and 
made it into this old school and when people would walk in they're like i heard about your shop it was in the newspaper and they would come in and see that a white girl <laughs> is ringing and they were like what is going on here <laughs> so yeah it was it was it was um it was crazy you know that's um how was it being being a white girl how how was it being an outsider there um it was it was um interesting it was I think that experience serves me really well here. Yeah, that was going to um, be my, my follow-up, which yeah, is how does that very, relate to you? It's very, people think they know you because they have this view of America. You know, and if I have tofu, people would come up to me in the grocery store and I would have tofu in my shopping basket and they're like, you eat that? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, there's, and there's no filter. There's no, which is why I taught international communication because in Japanese, if you walk in the room and you've gained a few pounds, people will be like, oh, you're looking a little fatter than when oh, I saw you yeah. last. There's no filter. So um, that comes with being a gaijin too. Like people will just say everything they think about you, yep. you know, right? And it's it's cool because you shed your ego really quickly, you know? And um, the cool thing was in my little community, I would forget sometimes that I was white because the people around me got to know me so well that, and that I spoke Japanese like an old farmer man. <laughs> I learned Japanese from boys snowboarding and and helping my farmer friends so i spoke really rude like crass old, old just <laughs> um <laughs> and when i tried to fix it everyone's like you know the, my, the better my japanese got academically the more i tried to speak like a you know and people would be like what are you doing what are you talking <laughs> like that so they treated me like a local you know and when i would go to a different town i was teaching workshops on plant medicine in other towns eventually and when i would go there i had to start from zero like Oh, can you use chopsticks? And I would remind, I was reminded very suddenly, regularly about my, that I'm white, mm. you know? Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was strange, but it didn't come with, it, it also came with privilege. It's weird how your whiteness brings privilege. Oh yeah. I was, um, really, um, given this, given a pass sometimes when I would do things that I didn't know were rude at the time. Mm. or people like oh she's white you know she doesn't know that um and i saw how other people white people would abuse that yeah um, and it actually made me really ashamed sometimes when i saw like um people kind of take that card and run with it you know um so yeah, yeah it's kind of painted how i how i function here as well you know um for different reasons obviously but <clears throat> how uh, how was it? I mean, you work, um, one of the things that you mentioned as far as your top three categories of issues was Native Hawaiian issues. Yeah. But, but also, when it comes to ag and housing, those are two also very closely related to, to Native Hawaiian issues. Yeah. Um, being somebody who's an advocate for, for issues from that perspective, the Native Hawaiian perspective, yet being an outsider, um, how do you do that? How are you, how are you treated by, by the folks that you work with? Oh, it really depends. And uh, it's, it's really, really complicated. Sometimes it makes my brain want to explode, literally, <laughs> like because I overthink everything so much and I'm so aware of my place everywhere that I, well, I was traveling the world, but especially here, I'm aware of my place. I'm aware that I'm living in a, in a questionable state yeah you know and I, I i am aware that my very presence here is an acceptance of that and i'm raising a white 
Japanese child here who is going to a Hawaiian immersion school. Um, it's all very complicated. And like I said, it makes it actually pains the insides of my brain if I think about it too much. But you know what? That's okay. It's really uncomfortable sometimes. It's mm. really uncomfortable to walk into a room thinking that I have anything to offer with a bunch of Hawaiians, in, you know? So, but guess what? Like that discomfort is something that people have been living, sitting with, especially Hawaiians for how many years? Like I'm, I'm not above discomfort. Yeah. So sometimes I just got to sit with that. And sometimes I don't know if I'm making the right choice, you know? So like with things like Mauna Kea and water issues, um, I try to just listen more than I talk. And I try to find places where the skill sets, somebody with a certain skill set needs to be and it's not filled yet. And maybe I have part of that skill set. Um, yeah, it's really uncomfortable. Mm. Sometimes. And, you know, um, some people understand that these issues, if any, if there ever is any going to be any forward movement made on them, that it has to be intersectional. You know, um, we need men to fight for women's rights, just like we need women to fight for women's rights. Same thing. We need non-Hawaiians to fight for Hawaiian rights, just like we need Hawaiians. You know, we need to be together. Um, and there are people that are like, get out of here. Mm. I got this, you know, you think you can, and that's fine. I'm, I'm not here to judge anybody's perception of whether I should be in a, in a, you know, involved in a certain movement or not. I just try to do my best knowing that I'm probably pissing some people off along the way. <laughs> but again, I'm just trying to be a good human and do what I think is right for this community. So, yeah. And it's not going to sit with everybody the right, the same way. And that's okay. Have you ever avoided, um, I guess, speaking up on a certain topic or, or voicing your opinion because you're afraid of the, the backlash that you'll get for being sort of a white person or, or a person that's not from here? I have definitely checked my, you know, my, my commentary more than a few times. But rather than, I've learned to, rather than avoid speaking up, I like to check what I want to say with some other trusted pe people that have been around here for way longer than me, you know? Um, and if they're Hawaiian leaders in the community, then yeah, sometimes I'll have a question about like, is this out of line, you know? Like, am I yeah. crazy here? And sometimes they're like, yeah, you know, maybe don't say that. And so I won't. Um, I definitely check the way I say things more because of who and, and what I am in this place. but. I think avoiding saying it is how we got here. Mm, you know? That's a good point. Like um, I've been to, and I'll be really, this is really um, something that's really here, kind let's of move your mic. shepped me lately, um, is that people were asking during the Monsanto thing, where's all the Hawaiians? There were a lot of Hawaiians involved, but you know, why is it a majority of white people doing this? And I get it, you know? If, uh, if I'm a Hawaiian leader or someone that's just, enchanted with everything that's going on the monsanto and agriculture is the one slice of this gigantic pie of injustice so why would i spend so much time on this one slice when the entire pie is wrong you yeah. know i want to tackle the root so um i get that so now when these bigger things about hawaiian land control and water rights those are really the root of the problem you know plantation style control versus Hawaiian issues. Um, 
I show up to some of these marches and some meetings and the question is, where's all the Howleys? People are at, like, why when it's our turn? Why when we're fighting so hard for something that means so much to us? Is it just Hawaiians in the room? You know? Like, a lot of people that I know, I, I wrote an article not very long ago about why it's, I think the title of it is, it's time for environmentalists to become indigenous rights activists. If you have any concern about the environment, anything related to the environment, then you have a a duty, an obligation to stand behind the people in your area that are working on indigenous rights issues because they are the original environmentalists, right? And no, you shouldn't stand in front of them and you shouldn't tell them how to do it, but you should be behind them. And when they ask you to stand next to them, you should stand next to them and lock arms with them, you know? So I don't, I feel a little bit uncomfortable maybe walking into a room where it's mostly Hawaiians on Hawaiian issues, but I, you know, we need to be there. Yeah. For them, you know? Well, that's a good point. That's how we got here because the white people didn't stick up when they Exactly. Yeah. That, exactly. That's that's a great way to put it. Um now let's um you you got to Maui. You wanted to be in politics, you got disenchanted with it, you you worked in nonprofits, you got disenchanted mm -hmm. with it, you went to Japan, all heck broke loose yeah. with with uh, a nuclear reactor. Um what you're here on Maui, you don't really have anything uh you got a kid what do you do where where did life take you then i started going to meetings and i don't actually know what came over me <laughs> i don't it, it, it makes no sense at all i started going to meetings and i my brain started dissecting the conversation on both sides and i started seeing them manipulate because like i said i've seen this before you know in a way that i can't really describe in words it started like this thing started happening in my brain and I started like researching and and really dissecting the false arguments that were being made by this entity which we now know was fake called the Citizens Against the Farming Ban which was funded entirely by Monsanto and Mycogen. Um, it was this web of lies and my brain literally I started diagra diagramming it and making these and I started just randomly knocking on doors. I, I don't know what came over me. I would never as a new person on an island, a white girl with a baby, I don't know, like everything in me says this is a terrible idea, you know, but I did it. Like I couldn't stop myself. And um, the rest is history. It's snowballed, you know. Um, people came out of the woodwork and I was one slice of this gigantic campaign and um, I didn't, we didn't get paid for any of it, you know. I got a little stipend every once in a while people would be like, what do you need to do this more? And I'd be like, childcare, I need childcare. Okay, great. Someone would go pay for childcare for a month for my daughter. Like it was just really like, doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, my husband at the time was like, what are you doing? We need to pay <laughs> rent, you know? <laughs> None of it mattered. Nothing else mattered for me than using what I had just been through in Japan to help not let the corporations control the conversation again, you know? Yeah. And then um, it's a testament, I guess, to Maui and people here wanting to make things better that um, I was taken care of. Like I needed jobs that would allow me to cut out at the very last minute and go to a meeting. And so people hired me to do random things. Like I was cleaning um, construction sites for a little while and like doing these random jobs, you know? And we were really just getting by. Um, and then I was taking odd contracts to do like 
alleged session research for the legislative session for three months at a time or whatever. Um, and then um, Ellie hired me. <laughs> she was like, I really like what you do, you know? Were, you, really... were you friends with her? Or did she just see you popping up? I, I met her and her staff, Sarah, through a lot of the ag and pesticide bills that they had worked on in the past, you know? Mm. Um, and um, yeah, I ended up working for her because Sarah, her main um, uh, manager, aide person, um, went on, uh, what do you call that? Maternity leave. Okay. So she said, and I had no interest in working in government. I was like, no, I still am. I, I, I even now, I'm not in government. I'm a mom and a surfer who happens to do this other stuff. <laughs> Um, and she said, hey, I need someone to come and work in this office for two or three months while I'm on maternity leave. And I said, I can do that. Okay. It'll give me a good window into what's going on here. And then she came back and I stayed, you know. Um, Still no interest in working in government, even though you... No. <laughs> and especially, A, because it would make me crazy. I need to be able to talk like I am talking now. I need yeah. to be able to swear when it's appropriate. I need to be able to, you know, I, I talk like this. I don't want to have to put a suit on and go sit on a chair in chambers every day and talk in a certain way to be respected. That's not my, that's not me, you know? Yeah. I need to be at the beach. I need to be playing with plants. Um, and also here, it's not my place. I've only lived here for less than 10 years, you know, eight years maybe. I don't belong there. Yeah. I will do what I have to to get people who have an intimate knowledge of this place and a stake in protecting it forever into those seats and I will work for them and I will help them do the research, but I don't get the final call. Mm. You know, a lot of times for Ellie too, my job was largely a research. I would put the research on paper and be like, here's what I see the options are. Choice A, choice B, three other choices that I don't even know about because, you know, I'm yeah. new here. And she would make the decisions. I don't want to be in that seat. Yeah. It's not my place. Now, personally, I've, I've had a couple of people ask me about running for, for office or any interest in politics. And I tend to say exactly the same thing, yeah. which is it's just not my, my role. I'm not yeah. from here. Um, but do you think that should be a disqualifying factor if, if somebody's running for office and they, they haven't been here for, I don't know, at least a decade or? No, not at all. And I've, I've voted for people who are in that. For me, I have this weird moral code yeah. Like I said, I have this really weird, idealistic moral code. I cannot do that. I will work tooth and nail to make sure that's a failure of our system. The fact that we have either this corporate backed candidate versus a person that's only been here for seven or eight years. Mm. You know what? There are plenty of genius, brilliant locals and or Hawaiians that are smart and capable and and should be in those seats, but our system hasn't painted this picture that they should be in those seats, mm. you know? Well, there's that, and also there, there's, it goes back to that economic justice aspect exactly. of it. Exactly, exactly. So I'd rather work on fixing that. Yeah. that the short-term solution is voting for the best candidate even though they, they're not from here or aren't born here or aren't Hawaiian, great, I'll do that in the short term. But in the long term, I wanna fix that, Yeah. you know? People who have lineal ties whose family stories go back to like why these places are named the way they are yeah. and understand like 
the way water moves and understand weather patterns and why springs in a certain area affect the growth of coral way out there. Those people should be in office. Mm. Those people should be the ones making decisions. Even you know? just from like a, a, the cultural understanding and cultural appreciation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. Plus, I mean, as you said, they're ours. For those elected officials working for the county, it just seems like it stinks. Like, totally. They're, they're always... <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, I appreciate you so much. You have no idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I have my doubts that anybody's listening. But it's, <laughs> it's still one of these things yeah. where that is... They work insane hours yeah. sometimes. And um, I had... I mean, and so do their aides, to be fair. And I loved oh, yeah. it. I loved being Ellie's aide. Yeah. You know, it was the hardest job the crappiest job that I ever loved with all of my heart. Um, let's let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about that job. So so in all, you started thinking that you're going to be working for Ellie for like two months. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did you work for? Three years, I think. What did you What did you do in that time? What are What are some things that you worked on that um, that you're particularly proud of? Um, well, mainly housing and ag. That was my. Those were my two. We in the office we separate. Um, topics so you know no one can know everything about everything yeah so we all kind of shared a collective brain in that office anything housing or ag related came to me um also um we worked on the the requirement to have a native hawaiian cultural practitioner sit on the planning commission which we we also passed the the requirement that all planning commissioners receive native hawaiian law training oh um put on by the school of Richardson, the Richardson School of Law. Um, and at, at why? Um, well, to be clear, we passed it for the Planning Commission only. We wanted to pass it for everybody. I think everybody in government should have this training, first of all. And I think every board and commission and every office um, that makes decisions about land, water, development, planning, you know, you name it, should have some kind of requirement to clear things by either a Native Hawaiian cultural practitioner, the Ahamoku councils of the area, um, because what we just said, there are people in this community that have this intimate knowledge of things that your engineering degree will not teach you about, Mm. you know? Um, And for planning commission and for zoning and planning, if you don't know about the public trust and if you don't know about Evie Kapuna protections, if you don't know about access rights for gathering and that kind of stuff, you cannot make good decisions. Mm. You know, you have to you have to understand your place here, you know, and that there are laws put here to protect Hawaiian access to land and water for a reason. And if you don't know that you're making decisions that are not sound, you know, prime example. I'm not an engineer. By any means, that's not like that's I have my brain does not work like that. But people wonder repeatedly why whenever it rains that center Kahului floods. Yeah. Right. If you get on a paddleboard, which I've done and paddle a mile out into the ocean and look back at Maui, that's literally the island's low point. Mm. So if you're an engineer setting up Maui's stormwater um, plan, you know, if you don't have a deep ocean view of this island you cannot do your no matter what you do the water is going to go there yeah you know there's nothing you can do to fix that so that just people need a different perspective here and um that's why when i worked for ellie we did things like that 
Mm. We would have liked to have that law apply to all boards and commissions. And that was one of our next steps. But, you know, government works one step at a time. So that's yeah. the thing I'm really proud of. Um, what else? I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, things like um, when Public Works wanted to replace the Kulani Hakoi Bridge, and in doing so, they would reroute South Kihei Road over this natural spring there. Um, we were able to stop that. Things like that. And that was because the Ahamoku from Kulakai came and said, this is a really bad idea. Nobody's listening to us. Mm. Please help us. You know, um, That's my personally my favorite role. And that's what I continue to do now, whether it's in Ellie's office as a, I'm finger quoting right now, lobbyist. A lot of people here have really solid information and really good ideas, and they're just not being listened to. And I happen to understand how the system works. So I'm just this conduit. I help people figure out how to work the system, you know? Um, You're like a community organizer. That's exactly what I am. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I am. Have you have you thought about building your own network or your own organization um, to, to sort of get that voice heard? Or, or do you think you're more effective as, as sort of a facilitator between multiple organizations and voices? Right now I do a bit of both. We have, um, I'm really proud of this coalition we've built around agriculture and pesticides. Mm. Um, we have, the, it's called the Protect Our Kiki Coalition. It's uh, a lot of national nonprofits are involved in it, also statewide nonprofits. And then there's the rogues, you know, and I fall somewhere in the middle, you know. Um, so yeah, I think that's really, really important. And that's what Huli the System was. That's what, you know, but a lot of times it's not, there are existing organizations, um, the Hui Onovae, how like people who have already been doing the work, I'll just kind of jump in and help them spread their message to my personal network. Or I, I like to kind of roll in this gray area. I've worked for the Hawaii Center for Food Safety. I currently work for Beyond Pesticides. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a role for these organizations um, but there's also a really important role for people who just show up when they need to show up, mm. you know? Working, um, so I, I don't know if I've actually met Ellie. I, I think I've met her briefly, but I've, I've never had the pleasure of like sitting down for, yeah. for a meeting or a conversation. But she does have a reputation um, for really inspiring the people that work for her. She's a pretty polarizing figure. Some yeah. people, she inspires them in a negative way, but, but a lot of people, she inspires in a positive way. What, what about her um, sort of attracted you to working for her, and how was that experience? Um, she... I've been accused a lot of being a radical or uncompromising or, um, you know... Do you think those are fair assessments? Yeah. And oh. I don't think, and I don't think they're bad. I re, I think I think I wear them as a badge. Yeah. And I see a lot. That's why I really respect Ellie, because Ellie will tell you right to your face, what you're saying is a terrible idea, and this is why. Michael Puna would be ashamed of you. And there's no compromise there, you know. There's no compromising away the future of our environment. So if you're gonna call someone uncompromising, or she would get. She has a reputation for scolding people like on the floor and of the administration for not doing their job. Yeah. If you're collecting a six-figure salary from the taxpayers and you're not doing your job and you're enabling mm. abuse of the system, you deserve a public scolding. And, and because it's politics, you know, that's not allowed or whatever. But Ellie would do it. And I respect that. I respect that. That's what we're missing here, you know. People need to be held accountable. And she empowered us a lot. Like... 
Um, I think really good leaders understand that they don't, they're only as good as the team they're surrounded with. Mm. So she empowered us. Like, here's, here's the goal. Make it happen, you know? And if we were stuck at a crossroads, I would ask her, what do you want to do here? And she would give me a direction and I would go. You know, but she didn't, she respected that I was capable and smart enough to get it done. Yeah. So um, it was really, it was really empowering. I learned a lot. Um, and I, that's where it kind of solidified the fact that I don't want that job because mm. it's really, for her too, she was before her time, she was often the single lone vote on a floor of nine. She would be the only no vote and she would catch cracks for it. Why did Ellie vote against this? Why did it, because she has a moral compass that is unwavering. You know, and I see people who get into politics with that moral compass and they have to compromise it away, trade this for that. And I get it. It's all I'm not judging. You know, yeah. it's all people are just trying to do their best. But there are a few people that will say, I don't care what you want to trade me. This is wrong. And I'm going to say it's wrong, even if I'm the only one in this room that's going to say that. And even if I'm going to it's going to go through anyway, I'm going to stand my ground. Yeah. And that's really important. What um, what do you think kept her from winning the the seat of mayor? Um, I you know what I almost don't want to even guess. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Um, I have my own ideas, but I'd rather not even go there. Yeah. To be honest. Uh, are you are you still working with Ellie at all? Do you do you know? Um... I I talk to her as friends. You know, I actually um, yeah, I see her like on a personal level. Um. That's about it. Well, that's good. Yeah. I, I, um, let me uh, get her contact. I'll invite her on the podcast. Okay, cool. You, you tell her that she's I welcome will do. to, to I will come. Do. Um, yeah. Now, there were there are lessons that you learned from everything. Um, what were some some of the bigger lessons that you took away from that experience working in the county system? I learned that the council. The county council, the meetings and the committee meetings, and I also worked for the state, like as a lobbyist at the state legislature, kind of mm. off and on both. I juggled these two jobs. I was kind of part time with Ellie for a long time, um, and I learned that our government is not our our systems, where these hearings are set up, and that's how we are supposed to pass bills to solve problems, are not set up to have these three dimensional conversations that are necessary. Yeah. Um, for example, oh, this is a really, this is great because you're a Ram guy. So the housing TIG, you know, the housing TIG was created because the planning committee at the time, the way that we have to function under sunshine law and everything has to be agendized and everything has to fit under a certain category. You can't talk about big problems and how to solve them. Mm. That's not what you can do on the floor of the council, you know? So they set the TIG up and we came up with all these recommendations and then they were punted back to the council and then nothing ever happened because you're only ever allowed to talk about one of those items at a time because of sunshine law, right? You can't agendize something to talk about, um, let's think of a good example, about infrastructure, right? And what kind of infrastructure we need to put in place to support the creation of affordable homes in appropriate zones of the county. If that's your agendized item, you can't talk about tax reform because that's not on the agenda. And tax reform fits under a different committee, right? Yeah. Tax is budget, infrastructure is, let's say, planning or whatever. You can't have those two conversations independently of each other. 
they belong in the same conversation. If you're talking about infrastructure, you have to talk about tax reform and who we're going to tax to pay for what, right? Yeah. So I got really frustrated because these items kept being agendized and they would end the committee with all these questions about how are we going to pay for this, question mark, question mark, question mark. And then a different committee with a different chair with different members would talk about taxes on a different week. And they would have all these questions. I'm oversimplifying here. But like, okay, if we raise these taxes, we have to justify the raising of these taxes. So where are they going to go? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Like, we need to have these two conversations in the same room. And it's nobody's fault. This is how the system is set up. Yeah. So I learned that big change doesn't happen in those rooms. Big change has to happen on a grassroots level. The ideas have to come from the grassroots level. And we have to bring them already packaged in a ribbon to the people in those seats that want that want to do good things and that want to listen to the, what the community has to say. But even then, that's such a good point that, that by the committee structure, the, the conversation is bifurcated. It's really, so really So even if you, you come with the big ideas. Yeah, so we even at the time, this is, I think Ellie had like six months left in office and she was like, all, full court press. I cannot leave office without us passing some of these. Yeah. This is like what we've been working on for years, you know? So we even tried to create a new committee, a TIG committee, you know, where all of the committee items that were currently sprinkled all over the various committees that came from the TIG were referred back to this one committee to allow a holistic conversation. We would agendize all the items right now, you know, and let's just have this huge holistic conversation. And it got blocked by the current, by the chair at the time Um, for reasons... I can't understand other than a power trip. So that's also what I learned is that your government only functions as well as people in power allow it to. Oh, and sometimes yeah. it's just a gigantic ego fight. I mean, the, the best example of that is Mitch McConnell yeah. on, on that federal level. where It's insane. If you're the chair of something, you really do have an immense amount of power as far as where the conversation goes. And you can have tantrums that affect everybody below you. And that's what I saw happening at the council a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. What's your, um, what's your take on Mount Achaia? Um, I am a, I'm a hardliner. I think there is no compromise. I think the only way that anyone wins here is if they take it somewhere else. Yeah. And give the Hawaiians control of their mountain back in whatever way that looks like. And that's not my job to dictate how that looks. But I think... Um, Anyone who's asking for a compromise is doesn't understand the situation well enough. Um, and, and, and I ask you that because you, you just spent some time up there, right? I've been there four times. I go back and forth um, as a legal observer, um, which means is a really good role for me as a non-Hawaiian to play because mm. I am my, my, I literally have a box to stand in, you know? Um, it is not my place to lead. It is not my place to have an opinion. It is my place to observe and to take detailed notes of the interactions of any enforcement officers and the kiai. And um, yeah, that's it. So I go, I go when there's a puka, when there's not enough legal observers, I'll go up for a couple of days and come back. And um, yeah, so I have, again, it's this, I, I'm standing in this bird's eye position where I'm watching everything, you know? Um, and I really, I really think, um, especially with climate change, that's why I wrote, 
Go read the article. Um, if anyone yeah. wants to find it, you can look on, if you're on social media, it was published under the Hawaii Center for Food Safety Facebook page. Um, I can go republish it on my Facebook page to make it easier to find for people to find. Um, and I'll link it um, in the, the show notes. Yeah, it's basically for, uh, about why um, indigenous rights movements um, all over the place are really important to understand and to support if our planet is going to have a future. You know, um, Hawaiians know how to manage this place. You know, mm. they know all the mistakes we're making um, and they've been shouting to whoever will listen for years about why we are ruining things to the point of no return. Um, and all of that is based in history and culture and call it what you want, whether you want to call it religion or whether you want to call it a belief system or whatever you want to call it, that's what it's rooted in. And so if you rob people of their basic spaces where all of that is rooted, you're robbing them of their ability to do everything that comes from that. You know, mm. um, if you listen to any, watch Mary Monarch and listen to any of the hula, or go to any of the tourist places and listen. If you understand the translations of any of the hula that's being performed, it all comes from Mauna Kea. It all comes from stories that originate there. You know, um, yeah. So we really, we really need to just give it back to them. And that's like, again, it's just what's right. Yeah. Economics aside, you can talk all you want about the jobs and the billions of dollars that you think it's going to bring here, but the 13 other telescopes didn't create some wave of change in Hawaii. They're just scars on the hearts of Hawaiians, you know? And how much economic prompt, you know, trickle down did that bring? Not much. Yeah. It's not an economic question. Anyone who brings jobs and economics to the table here doesn't understand the problem at all. That's, you know, and this goes back to, if we're going to circle back, this is the point, not everything is for sale. Not everything is about economics. Yeah. Whether it's the reefs, whether it's EV burial sites, whether it's pristine watersheds, whether it's whatever, not everything is for sale. You know, if, whether you want to build a house on it for poor people or a telescope or whatever your intent is, no matter how great it sounds on paper, not everything is for sale. Mm. Not all water is for sale. Not all land is for sale. You know? To play devil's advocate, because I agree with you. Um, what about the folks who say not everything is sacred? So, so you know, it's an island um, or a chain of islands, small places, small geographical area that has been inhabited for quite a long time. There are a lot of bones sprinkled everywhere. Um, you know, there are, there are those folks who I don't agree with. I'm, I'm going to go ahead yeah. and say that now. Um, who say, oh, well, there are, you know, there are bones everywhere. It's just bones, whatever is, you know. Um, or who was it, Harkawa, who said, you know, there's no such thing as sacred rocks. What do, you, what do you say to the folks who say, well, you know, aren't we taking this sacred thing a bit far? What is, you know, Mount Akea, that's a pretty clearly, you know, you could point to that and you could say, okay, there's a lot of reasons for this to be sacred. Um, but let's say that Maui Lani area. What do you say to those folks who say, oh, you know, just let us put the houses there? I mean, again, speaking, I feel a little bit uncomfortable speaking as a non-Hawaiian here. Okay. But, but I will say that that is the product of a hundred and something years of colonial, you know, of colonization. Yeah. If I, the people who are saying that are largely not Hawaiian, yeah. have grown up in a plantation 
you can say that the plantation time is over right now, but it's not. The plantation era is alive and well right now, mm. the way that we manage systems here. So these are all people that have grown up in that system. Of course they're going to say that they're not, that, that, you know, Pohaku are not sacred. I don't expect Arakawa to understand that. Yeah. You know, but he's, look where he's, the system he's grown up in. And that doesn't mean he's not right, you know. He's, <laughs> I, I don't have an argument for that. You can think whatever you want. Mm. But when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. What yeah. matters is the people who have an intimate understanding of this place for generations and generations and generations and generations. If you guys want to argue, great, take your argument over there. You mm. know, um, I could go to Italy right now and stand in front of any one of their, you know, um, Notre Dame and say, this place doesn't deserve to be rebuilt because it's not sacred because Catholicism allows yeah. A, B, and C. And I could fight tooth and nail with people there. But am I Italian or did I grow up in the Catholic religion? Or, no, it's not my place. Yeah. You know, do I agree with everything the Catholic Church allows? No. But am I going to also tell a people that rebuilding their beloved church is not worth it? Yeah. Not my place. One, um, an interesting analogy to, to Mauna Kea that somebody had shared with me um, was they related it to the OJ verdict. And <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but when they explained it to me, they said the OJ verdict, when, when the, the black community celebrated OJ being acquitted, it wasn't about OJ. It, it wasn't about him as an individual. The, the whole case had grown... To, to represent this, this cultural um, and, and historical injustice against black people in the criminal justice system. And having this cop who was a racist during the trial and showing that, that the, the state didn't even bother to, to do all that it could to try and prove this person guilty, that they just kind of expected him to, to be um, found guilty. Mm. Um, that when people were celebrating, it wasn't about OJ getting off. It was about, you know, finally the criminal justice system didn't just take the, the state's word over a black person's word anymore. Right. Finally, there was, was some sort of cultural justice as a, as a big proxy almost. Right. I hesitate um, to comment on that because I think money had a lot to do with it anyway. But I, I, oh, I don't even, I don't even want to dilute, do yeah. I don't even want to dilute it with that. But anyway. Um, but I think I, the reason why I found that such a compelling analogy because, you know, I think... Um, the sort of legal and economic arguments kind of fall to the wayside when you realize that this has more to do with historical and, and um, you know, systemic injustices that mm -hmm. have been going on for a lot longer. Yeah. That it's not just about this one contract to build this one giant telescope that, you know, as you pointed out, well, what happened with these other telescopes? Uh, and also look at all these folks who say it is sacred to them mm. just because you don't agree and just because you have a piece of paper that that some other person that agrees with you told yeah. you says it's yeah. not sacred. Um, and these are all yeah. these are the things that make one's brain hurt living in a in this di in this weird dichotomy of a nation yeah. under control of the U.S. government with a duality. It's a duality that. It's really mind-boggling. It hurts, my, like I said, it hurts my brain to think about it sometimes. But um, Mauna Kea, for me, I think is, from an outside perspective, looking in, is really. We're in this special time right now, where, you know, 
Greta Thornburg rides a mm. sails to the U.S. to scold the U.N. climate convention. Um, literally scold them. We have a teenager scolding our leaders <laughs> and crying, shame on you. You know, we have Hawaiians that are ready to do whatever they have to do, you know, to protect their mountain. It's time. Like, I, this, this is, I, I've said this a couple of times. This is not a time for compromise anymore. We've compromised away our environment, our kids' future. The Hawaiians have compromised away almost to the brink of extinction their own culture. Mm. And at this point, you know, like the fact that Hawaiian language not only still exists, but is, th is st starting to thrive and grow in this way that not many indigenous languages are, is a real testament yeah. to, to, to this, this time. A line had to be drawn. We either draw a line and push, and people can call us irrational, people can call us, you know, whatever they want, radical, that's not my concern. We're drawing a line and we're pushing, you know? And it's all related to me. It's all related. The health of our oceans, you know, our, these, the amount of homeless people, most of them Hawaiians, oh. increasing in Hawaii. Like all of this, it's time to be radical. It's time to be uncompromising. It's time to draw lines and say, I don't care what you think of me right now. The survival of this place is more important. And that's what's happening all over the world. All over here, you know, um, I think it's all really connected. So with, with all the, the places that you've been, the things that you've been involved with, um, and the fights that you've had, with all of your, your disenchantment, um, today, looking at the future, are you hopeful or pessimistic? How, how do you approach it? I have to be hopeful because I have a seven-year-old. Yeah. And if I'm not, then I really, like, lose it a little bit really you know um and i have this like i have to you know i have to do stuff i gotta you know I'm, I'm always the one that puts my hand up when nobody wants to put their hand up to do something you know um so i will say this um as a legal observer on mauna kea i was sitting in this little area with all the rest of the legal observers it's like i call us the geek squad it's like <laughs> we sit around and talk about law and, you know what i mean like <laughs> um I don't know if anybody else appreciates that I call us the Geek Squad, but I do. I think it's rad. Anyway, um, I took a class. They have the university up there. Yeah. Um, and they, there are really qualified educators almost daily teaching classes. And I took a class on Kuleana lands. And I don't pretend to understand title disputes and Kuleana lands and things like that. I am woefully undereducated on this entire thing. I do know that it's really unfair, and I've seen people that I respect a lot go through the legal system to get their land back, and I know it's possible. I also know that the system is set up to not make it easy, Yeah. you know? Um, so I sat through this class, and I was thinking to myself, gosh, I really wish I'd finished law school. Maybe I should just go back and finish law school here at the School of Law and, like, really focus on... Hawaiian land rights and Kuleana land rights and all of these different things to get Hawaiians back on their land. Maybe I should do that. And then I went back to the legal observer tent and I looked around at me. And I think at the, there might have been eight of us. And two of us were not Hawaiian. And almost all of them were women. And they were all in law school. Hmm. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to. <laughs> because there are some brilliant young Hawaiian women in law school right now 
who are literally going to law school to dismantle this system. So I'm just going to do what I can to support where I can. And I see these, these young people, and it's a cop-out for, I hate when people say the young people are going to solve this because it's a cop-out because we shouldn't mm. have put them in this position at all. Yeah. And we should right now, while they're coming up, be laying the groundwork and start making radical change so they don't have to work so hard. But that being said, I see how passionate they are. Yeah. And I see that the people coming out of college right now are brilliant and they don't respond to this, the economics doesn't match up crap. You know, they're ready to... Because the economics, we, I, uh, they're ready as, to pull, they're ready to burn the house down. Yeah. So that's what gives me hope. These guys are like middle fingers up to you and your bank bailouts, and you and your, you know, they don't care right now because they're gonna, they're graduating, graduating school with mountains of debt. They're never gonna be able to own a house. You know what I mean? They, <laughs> their water is dirty. Their food sucks. So what do they have to lose? Yeah. You know. So that's what gives me hope. My seven-year-old already has big ideas. She's like, we drive by the Maui Lu. She doesn't understand. So this is not political commentary at all about what's yeah. happening at the Maui Lu, though I have my opinions. We drive by the Maui Lu, and she's like, Mom, they cut all those trees down. How rude is that? And I was like, yeah, babe, it's pretty rude. And she's like, all that sand, you know, she's at seven, is going to go right into the ocean. And I was like, wow, you're listening. She's paying attention. You know, she maybe not specifically here, but she hears that what happens on the land affects the ocean and I was like yeah babe and we drive by every day on the way to school and they still haven't planted trees and they still haven't planted trees and then they put this fence up and she's like they put a fence what happened to all the trees we should have a meeting about it <laughs> yes babe we should have a meeting about it <laughs> this is raising a, a little seven, radical you know <laughs> and we took, I took her out yesterday to um Mont there's a small pod of whales that is not well hanging oh. out outside Kulakai outside Kihei and they've been there for about a week so a group of us on rotation you're just going out to make sure that they're still there and that they're, they're not super close yeah. they're maybe thinking about beaching themselves so we set up a picnic yesterday and we talked about them and um talked about maybe what's happening and what will happen if they come to the beach and so this morning again we drive that north kihei road and she's looking for them and they're gone and she said what if somebody calls you and says that they're that they're on the beach and i said well then i'm gonna go we're going to go do what we can to help them. And she goes, but I'm going to be at school. So can you come get me? And I was like, yeah, babe, I'll totally come get you. Like she's in, she's into it, you know? That's awesome. So I, um, that's what gives me hope is these, these kids that are like, they're up against a wall, you know? Yeah. They have to do something, you know? I try to, I try to remain hopeful. It's depressing. It really is. I mean, it really is depressing, but you know, if you I got the number one reason. If I can come out of a nuclear reason. meltdown. Yeah. And still, <laughs> and still be okay. I, you know, you just—it's an exercise. Yeah, I am. Um, I have a lot of faith in in the uh, millennial generation, personally, because because mm. we all got, uh, we really saw firsthand how the economy can just screw you over real quick, mm -hmm. and how all the people who are responsible for it are doing way better off financially than any of the people that paid the price yeah. for it. Yeah. Um. So that's that is a downer. But yeah. Um, yeah. Now I um, we we've been talking for a while, so let's okay. let's move into our, our wrap up questions. Okay. So so I like to ask everybody um, you know sort of the same set of questions. These are nice softballs. So um, first off, what book would you recommend to anybody listening? Um, what book would I recommend? 
Um, for like for pleasure or for <laughs> for either. For um, I like to keep them pretty broad, open questions, and and part of the answer is to see how the person interprets it when they answer. Okay. Um, for pleasure, I would recommend Jitterbug Perfume. What's that? Um, it's a fiction book. I forgot the guy's name right now. I'm so embarrassed that I can't remember the author's name. Um, anyway, it's a fiction about this um, society that values youth. And as soon as their king starts exhibiting signs of aging, they oust them because they think that aging makes you make bad decisions, right? So the king gets a gray hair. And he's like, oh my God, you know, and he like, so he does all these things to stay young, breathing techniques and ice bath, him and his, him <laughs> and his wife or whoever he calls his lady at the time. Um, they, it's like the fountain of youth, you know, they're just yeah. trying to stay young, trying to stay young. And then they have this agreement that when they do get old and go to the afterlife, that they will, they, they're so in love that they will find each other through the most primal sense we have, which is smell. So they will, they bathe in this perfume and then they will find each other. Anyway, I will leave the rest. But it's really beautiful. I've read it like 10 times. I'll check it out. I haven't read it lately because I'm so busy geeking out on like legislation and community plans and stuff. So I don't have a lot of time for um, pleasure reading. Um, but right now um, I'm reading a book called This is an Uprising. And it's a study of all nonviolent, not all, some of the major nonviolent um, rebellions slash revolutions and what the common threads were and what the successes and failures were and what each one learned from the previous one. Um, and it's fascinating, mm. um, especially now. It starts with um, Martin Luther King. It starts with Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and it goes, like I said, the successes and failures of each one. And it talks about the difference um, of looking at nonviolent rebellion as a spiritually, the moral, the moral high road versus it's also a very politically smooth way to do things, you yeah. know? Um, yeah, this is an uprising. It's fascinating. Very cool. Yeah. What is guaranteed to make you smile? Um, chest high waves with no wind on it and nobody out. Very surfer girl answer. <laughs> I like it. And as a bonus, my daughter boogie boarding on the inside while I, <laughs> while I score on the outside. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what goal do you have that you haven't achieved yet? What goal do I have that I haven't achieved yet? Make you think on this one. God, there's so many. Um... That's a really hard one. Yeah. That's a really hard one. I often tell people... Yeah, what's yours? Clown college. I, <laughs> I always... And people think I'm joking when That's I say this. amazing. I, when I was... And, and I'll explain it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, when I was younger, my dad was in the, the Freemasons. And one of the offshoots of the Freemasons is the Shriners. And he, he had friends who, who were Shriners. And one of them was going to clown school and he, he like came back with pictures from, from clown school and, and with his clown makeup and he explained that, you know, they registered the clown makeup. Everybody has their own individual clown makeup that oh, they wow. do. And it's registered and that's part of your thing because Shriners, they have the children's hospitals and as part of their like public service, they, they dress up as clowns and they, they go to children's hospitals and just 
do clown stuff. And I thought that that was, and by the way, I'm kind of scared of clowns. Like, I, I'm uncomfortable. Well, all, all the more reason. Yeah, it's super weird. <laughs> and, and, like, seeing this and seeing that, that here's a way to help, like, kids who are sick, um, and it's just goofing around and being completely absurd, I was like, man, someday, someday I'm going to okay, go to clown college. Cool. Okay, that, that helped me think. <laughs> I, I have a, I have a um, line of skincare products called Monosol. And um, there's one product in particular, two products that I'm particularly really, really proud of. Um, and I would, I've, it's been very stop-start for me to, it comes from my herbal medicine background, rather all made of plants and um, plant-based oils and stuff. Um, over the last few years, I've tried to get them licensed and packaged where they can be sold um, uh, on a larger scale. And I just haven't had the time to do that because... I have to pay rent first yeah. of all, um, and these there's always this community these community issues or elections coming up. I don't have the time or the capital to dedicate to it, but someday. Are you are you selling them anywhere now? Um, off and on, yeah. I haven't lately made any. I only have enough for my own personal use. Okay. Um, but I used to sell them, yeah, locally um, and on Etsy and stuff, and I did pretty well for a while. And I have customers calling me, hey. I'd like to order some of that spray, but I just don't have the time right now. Mm, that so. might that might be an idea for for later on, like a, a subscription service. Yeah, yeah. I've been yeah. through. I've been. It, it's incredibly um, time consuming because you have to go harvest the plants and you ah. have to dry them out, and it's this very like multi step process. And right now, um, my brain space is taken up with other you know trivial things like housing. Have, have you ever thought about doing like a, a class for people to, to teach them local, um, you know, botany or, or herbal medicine? With I did that in Japan in a lot. Um, when I came here, I did that a little bit. And then I realized there are people here that are so more, so much better informed, especially oh. about local plants um, and their uses that I don't really feel comfortable doing that. That, um, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. But the products, the two products that I make are just so they're like my own personal little inventions that are really good quality. So someday, someday. Very cool. Yeah. Um, what is something that you've learned recently? Something that I've learned recently. Um, wow. I, I feel like every day has just been a download. Um, I was up on Mauna Kea taking a class. And I, I've read the Kumulipo. Right, the, the you know, if you're familiar with the yeah, the, um, okay, the, the origin creation story, right? Yeah. Um, I've read it from a Howley first time looking at it perspective, and you know, also we all learned about Darwin and yeah. evolution, and I took this class, and I realized the point was being made that people will say that Hawaiians are against science and we're doing all this and we, we don't have you know that Western science is the you know the basis of all scientific theory but the kumulipo is basically evolution theory that was published i'm finger quoting published it was passed down through our culture for a hundred years before darwin ever wrote his mm. you know his theories about evolution because so, they they start out with life coming from the ocean right uh yeah yeah um so anyway and then um, at the end, of, I'm super oversimplifying. I apologize for butchering this to anybody who's listening. But a lot, at the end, a lot of the chapters, they have, it says po no, po no. 
Um, and that is basically the balance of light and dark. And when, so when people are talking about being Pono, I've read the creation, the Kamulipo, you know, twice over, and I've read that word Pono a number of times and never made the connection that that's what that word means. It's about balance. It's about balance yeah, between that light middle and dark, ground. between day and night, you know, like in the beginning, it's, and still it was night, and still it was night, and then light came. Anyway. Um, that, I just real, I just learned that on my last trip to Mauna Kea a couple days ago. It's so fresh in my mind. Very cool. Are, are you a, a religious person or, or a spiritual person? Or? Not at all. Yeah. Um, I do believe in um, whatever it is that means that I am a product of my family lineage and that I carry this energy and this wisdom through me from my grandpa and my and his grandpa um and that that makes me who i am yeah whatever religion that is um yeah that's good yeah, yeah. that's fine i'm not I'll i just, I'm just yeah, i was no, just curious yeah. because <laughs> we're talking about spiritual yeah. stuff um and then my last question what is one piece of advice that you would give to anyone listening that's pretty broad right <laughs> um that there are no absolutes, I think, and that there's always um, a billion ways to look at something, you know, and that you can think you know everything about a topic at hand and you just don't, you know. And I think that's the one thing, if there's any overarching thing, this one talent that I've gleaned from all these weird, disconnected parts of life that I've led is that I have this uncanny ability to see things through other people's eyes. Even if I disagree with you too, like I will fight to the death with you because what I think what you're saying is wrong. I can understand how you got there. Yeah. And I think that's a trait that a lot of us would really benefit from having. I see how people get to where they are. Even if I think they're totally wrong, I can see how their life experiences led them there. Yeah. Um, So I think if more of us, tried to do that we could still violently disagree with each other like yeah. wildly but it helps to even dissect that person's point of view by knowing what brought them there you know yeah i i love it i um you know this is why i i sort of disagree with your characterization of, of you being a radical just to a slight amount because <laughs> okay. um most radicals aren't as patient as you are as far as your willingness to to hear people out um and actually have meaningful discourse um, when you disagree on something. Um, you know, I thank you for for taking the time to sit down with me today. Um, yeah, it's a little bit out of character for Ram to, <laughs> I was like, what could I be talking to the realtors about? But um, yeah. I'm... You know, I, I just, um, I think especially what's going on lately with, you know, a lot of folks say identity politics and it's become a buzzword that sort of lost a lot of its meaning. Mm. But, but really to, to me, when, when I hear that, what it means is lumping people into a certain category and making up your mind about them based mm. on the identity that they've been labeled with. Yeah. Um, you know, the realtors, there's this big assumption that we're, we're all for certain things or that there's one unifying political ideology mm. behind the right. group but with over 1700 members it's it's impossible to really pinpoint um everybody's feelings with with just one statement or one representative right. Right. um and also you know you don't 
I think it was like a quote from Game of Thrones. You you don't make peace with your friends. Right. You don't have to. Right. Um, you know, I think it's important that the folks that I want to talk to the most are the folks who have that reaction. That why the heck does does Ram want to talk to me? <laughs> um, or or why would the realtors be interested right. in it? Because you're heavily involved in politics. And and the thing about um, your work with with Ellie and just Ellie in general. Um, I think you're you're spot on with you saying that that she was ahead of her time. Yeah. Um, if she had been on council now, she would she'd be making up the majority. Yeah. Um, you know, even things like the plastic straw ban. I'm shocked that there was there were people opposing that. It, it's it seemed it took, so. I, it took seven years maybe to pass a styrofoam ban. It's maybe absurd. more. I might I might be doing it a disservice. It maybe took more. We just had um, <laughs> what was it like National Shoreline Cleanup Day or yeah. International Shoreline Cleanup Day was was Saturday. Um, so so me and my wife went and did a, a beach cleanup over by Kahului Harbor. And my nephews came out, and I I'm a I'm a Johnny come lately to, to Maui. I came in, in 2016. Mm. There is a noticeable increase between the between then and now of the microplastics you you see on mm. the beach. Um, you know, going out I, several months back, I went out to Wainapanapa, and you know the the area is pristine, it's beautiful, and then you get into the water, and all the microplastics are in the surf in this in this beautiful spot where where it seems as though it's being well maintained. Um, to, to think that, that people were arguing against the plastic straw ban, just go out to a beach cleanup one day. You'll yeah. find dozens of plastic straws. It'll show you this is where the problem is. And then that economic argument that, you know, oh, well, our business will suffer if we don't have plastic straws. If not offering plastic straws is going to put you out of business, your business is failing. Exactly. You know, exactly. that's, that's how I feel about that. Yeah. And it was the same thing with, with the styrofoam ban. You're, you're really going to tell me that, that restaurants didn't succeed before they had styrofoam plastic, uh, takeout containers? That's not true. That's not true. You're, you're being dishonest. And the consequence of using cheap styrofoam containers is that this, this place that we all claim to love is getting, it, it's becoming a dump. Yeah. yeah, it's becoming, it's getting trashed. Can we end on a really funny story? Yes. Okay, so um, Ellie's office. Mainly Sarah and a lot of activists around the community were super involved in pushing this styrofoam ban through. And Ellie was like, we are doing this. Like, it was meeting after meeting after meeting and all these legal loopholes. And do we exempt sushi, styrofoam sushi plane containers and the cup ramen cups and the styrofoam coolers and the boogie boards that you get at ABC store, those oh, cheap yeah. ones? All of it was, it was a headache. We did it. Um, I wasn't the core, but I was very much involved in this whole thing. I was working for Ellie at the time, and we were juggling all these exemptions and how do we get this through. And in the end, we did not exempt cup noodle cups, so they were part of the ban, but we did exempt those boogie boards, right, because mm. it's not a food container. So um, I literally got, like, death threats. Death, not really. Like, the day before the styrofoam ban went into effect, my friends were calling me, like, oh, my God cup noodles are going to be illegal. And I was like, yeah, you're welcome. A, you shouldn't be eating that crap anyway. So that was ironic. And then a couple of months later, my daughter's dad works at this big condo with tourists that come in and out. And there's always a big stack of boogie boards and plastic, oh, yeah. everything. So instead of taking them to the dump, Mana, my daughter, wanted to use one of them. 
And I was like, okay, great. I'm not, I'm, I haven't bought it. We'll put it in the back of the truck. She can use it for as long as she wants. La la la. And um, the fabric covering it was ripped apparently. And so she's we're at our favorite surf break at the cove and it, it busts in half in the middle of the cove and it's a windy day. And so all of those little uh. styrofoam balls that make up that boogie board were blowing all over the cove and it was like this conf- it was like a snow storm and mana is looking around and i'm like oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god that's why these things are so terrible like i literally worked on the styrofoam band tooth and nail and all my sweat and my daughter has just released a jillion styrofoam balls into our favorite break so i go grab the net from the car and we're like scooping all and then one of my really good friends unknowingly not knowing how ironic this is, comes up and she goes, you know, I think those are really bad for the ocean. <laughs> In fact, I'm pretty sure somebody banned these a couple of, like a year ago. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was totally me. That was me. That was my bad. <laughs> anyway, lessons learned. Lessons learned. Hey, are you on Netflix? Do you watch Netflix? I am. You should check out The Good Place if you okay. haven't already. Okay. It's, it's a great show about... Um, about morality. It's okay. hilarious, though. Okay. I cool. love it. it it's out. really wholesome. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'll check it out. I, it's, yeah, I mean, you, I think you're, you're ahead of, of, of your time a little bit. Um, and and I, I think that's why it's important to, to be talking to you. Um, you know, other people have noticed, yeah, I'm kind of taking Ram's government affairs policy in a, in a slightly different direction than we may have mm. in the past. Um, one, because when I was hired, I was tasked with being a bridge builder. Cool. Um, and two, because I take a long view. And what I mean by that is I'm not a realtor, but I've been entrusted with this sort of, um, I almost think of it as like a fiduciary relationship where I need to, to look after the real estate industry, not just for the, the short-term profitability of, of the realtors that are members now, but I want the realtors who are members 100 years from now to, to realize, okay, because of policies that, that we supported um, or that we didn't obstruct back when this guy was, was working, um, we still have an island that has a, a robust economy that, that has a, a populace that is happy to live here and can live here um, in healthy and thriving communities. Yeah. You know, I, I think that should be the goal of all of us. And quite frankly, the, the exclusively corporatist view of, of the world that was, you know, increased profitability and, and it'll trickle down and it'll benefit others. You know, if, if we have big corporations that are, that are thriving, then of course they'll look after everybody else because it behooves them. I mean, if you spend like 20 minutes looking into behavioral economics, you'll realize that, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, people, people and corporations don't do what necessarily yeah. would behoove them in the long run. Yeah. It's, it's more just what feels good yeah. a lot of times. And, and we, we got to step away from that. And, yeah. and part of stepping away from that is, is talking to people with, with good ideas that are, are maybe impractical and might cost us some money, but, but we'll make sure that Maui is healthier for a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, so, so thank you for, for being one of those people. Thanks for having me. My favorite radical. My, my, <laughs> I, I, was, I was sad to see that you were in the top five for Maui Times Best Political totally. Activist. Totally. Um, but I, I, think, I think you should have been. Uh, I, was, um, I was with a very um, esteemed. Yes. The other four. I, it's, a, it's a really big honor to be in that 
It is. Even it's, in that group. It's a, it's a good group. It. Next year, I, I I'll hope you get it. number one. Uh, I, as okay. as, <laughs> I, I, um, yeah, as long as I keep rolling with that crew, I'm cool. All right. <laughs> well, thank you for the time, and Thanks, thank Jason. you all for listening. Take care.